Ephesians 4. This morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 6. In conflicts and major church trials, it is not uncommon for people to walk around irritable and full of suspicion, whether that be suspicion of leadership or just suspicion of each other. People might act, even in the church, might act as if there is some great conspiracy going on, and there becomes this fear of change as well as fear of man, and it leads people to turn from loving each other and playing survival of the fittest. Story after story, and you've probably read them, hits the internet uh, year after year of scandals and splits over various issues. And when you think of all this in church trials and church conflicts, you wonder, well, what's the problem? What's the root problem in this? Well, people are involved. And everyone's a sinner. If it wasn't for the people. You know? The reality is everyone needs the gospel. All of us, beginning with me, are sinners and we need the gospel desperately. But we forget the gospel. We forget the need for the gospel. And we easily, I easily forget how the gospel changes the way we live. And we, we still, honestly, we still wage war against the sin of our flesh. And as that bumps into each other, you often wonder how a church even survives. How does it not implode? How does it not tear itself apart? Well, the Apostle Paul helps us with that as we consider the last subject of our Church Matters series, which is how to remain the church. How to remain the church. How, how should we continually live and move forward as the church so as not to tear ourselves apart? Well, we find the answer for that in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Let's read this together. The Apostle Paul writes, beginning in verse 1 there, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We can think of this text in two sections. Verses 1 through 3, let's answer the question, now what? In verses 4 through 6, we follow up with the question, but why? Which is every kid's favorite question. Now what and but why? And this text teaches us that we must, the main point, we must maintain the unity of the church by intentionally living as people changed by the gospel. We must maintain the unity of the church by intentionally living as people changed by the gospel. So that's what he's teaching us here. Let's, let's dive into the details 
Let's begin with verses one through three. Now what? Now what? I think this serves as a good landing pad for us in this church series. In In light of everything we've discussed over the past nine weeks regarding the doctrine of the church, and trust me, we did not exhaust that topic. In light of everything we've learned, now what? What, what do we do now? How, how should we live in light of that? Well, verses 1 through 3 tell us how the Lord commands us to live now. We see in verse 1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Now the first thing that should pop out to you there is that word therefore and to bang the drum again when you see a therefore you ask what's the therefore therefore well it's there for a reason it is building upon all that has been previously said in this letter often we think in Paul's writings you can divide up kind of how the flow of his thought goes and at some point he transitions to more applicational thinking and we see that here Verse, we, we consider chapters 1 through 3 and everything he has said. And we learn from chapters 1 through 3 that this is the Apostle Paul writing here to the saints in Ephesus. And he begins in chapter 1. You might remember we, uh, chapters, uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 14 is an amazing text about the sovereign predetermining work of God and salvation. But we often forget how it begins. It begins with verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The whole point of this, as Paul walks through this doctrine, is to praise God. It begins with praising God for the wonderful and extensive plan of salvation, including the blessings we receive from it. Right? He's granted to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And it is by God's will and his purposes that he chose from the foundation of the world, from before the foundation of the world, to save a people and make them his children. But Paul also reminds us in these beginning chapters that no one is deserving of said salvation. In fact, we are naturally dead in our sins, unable to please God, deserving of his wrath, children of the devil, naturally. Yet, Salvation was accomplished through the work of the Son who came to earth and died on the cross. It wasn't possibly accomplished, it was accomplished, which is good news. And now when we repent and trust in Jesus, in this Son, He gives us life. Though we were dead, He makes us alive, and He reconciles us to God, who who, then He also gives us His Holy Spirit, not to just be next to us, but to dwell within us. And that spirit changes us, he sanctifies us, and he is also a seal, a marker of the guarantee of this coming full inheritance that awaits us. We belong to God, sealed by his spirit. He owns us, and in light of that, in addition to that, we now have good works to do that God himself prepared for us beforehand. And through this gospel, not only do we receive such these amazing spiritual blessings and benefits, but through the gospel, God has brought a peace that could not be attained any other way. A peace even among men that could not be truly attained any other way. It is through Jesus that both Jew and Gentile are reconciled to God and united together. 
as the people of God. And we are both citizens in God's household, his kingdom, and those we are those whom God dwells with. All done by God's amazing grace according to the purpose of his will. And this God and his works are inexhaustible. In fact, the Apostle Paul prays that by God's working, we would understand it all better. As at the same time, we love Christ and desire to live for his glory. Any love for Christ and desire to work for his glory is a work of God in our hearts. And God gets all the praise for that. None of us deserve such work. And so, chapters one through three tell of these amazing, inexhaustible doctrines that you will spend the rest of your life, you should spend the rest of your life studying and meditating on and pondering over and over. These great doctrines like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation are meant to guide us now in the church. They are meant to guide us in how we ought to live as a church. And so we hit chapter four and Paul transitions from doctrine to duty. In light of these great doctrines, now we must live this way. It is interesting that Paul says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, a prisoner for the Lord. Paul was actually in prison in Rome at this time, so he was literally a, a prisoner, and yet the idea, there's a perspective behind this that is right. This is Paul's perspective. I'm a slave to the Lord, a prisoner to him. I do whatever he says, and that is right. It is fascinating that he does not say, I, therefore, a, an apostle of the Lord. Like you think that's natural where he'd go because he'd be, oh yeah, he wants to, you know, you, he's got that authority to tell you this is now how you ought to live because he's an apostle and we have to follow that. And yet Paul himself sets the example. He calls himself a prisoner. He has surrendered his rights. He's captive to someone else and that is Christ and that serves as a model for us. We are to be captive to Christ. And our brother Paul here, what does he do? He, just like Peter does in 1 Peter 5 when we talked about the responsibilities of elders, he exhorts them, he urges them. So Paul does that here as well. He, it says, he, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. He urges them. He appeals to them. He appeals to them strongly. Yes, this is exhortation, but there's a sense of passion in this. Please listen and do this. This is right. This is good for you, and it is good for the people, and it glorifies God. Please do this. Do what? Well, walk. Walk in a worthy manner. Well, does he just mean like walk? Like walk? I got that down. I can do that. Sometimes. No, when the, when the Bible, especially Paul, uses the term walk, he's referring to how you conduct yourselves, how you live your lives. Okay, so live a certain way. I urge you to live in a manner worthy of your calling. The gospel is not just your fire insurance, your get out of hell free card. 
it has demands upon our lives. We live according to it. We live, as he says, we are to live worthy, worthy of it. This word worthy means suitable. It matches. It matches the interchange that comes from the gospel so that it is displayed outwardly. It corresponds rightly with our calling. We, we hear the world, you know, when we think about how this works, we hear the world often attack Christians by saying, oh, they're just so hypocritical. Well, if that is true, that means that Christians are not living in a way that matches what the gospel calls. Now, there's a lot behind those statements and accusations. But that's the idea. It's not hypocritical. Paul actually uses this command often in the New Testament. In Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel of Christ. As one writer has said, this means there is distinct conduct required of believers. And I know our flesh is naturally quick to want to say, whoa, 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 that's legalism. How dare you say, I have to live a certain way, you legalist, you. The scriptures are clear. There is a way we are supposed to be living. Do not play the legalist card just so you can get away with your sin. Live according to your passions. There is a distinct conduct required. Let me give you an illustration of this. I'm a pastor. It's obvious. I'm a pastor who has been called to preach and teach the word. I'm called to shepherd and disciple God's people with God's word. But what if... I never read the word. I never studied the word. I actually didn't really preach or teach it. I just told funny stories about myself. You would say, that's not right. You are a minister of the word. Why aren't you in the word? And I would say, you are absolutely right. That is not living according to the calling. That is not being worthy and living according to the calling that I have been given. So our conduct must match the calling we have. It is pleasing to God. It is right for people who know the Lord to live for the Lord. And if we aren't living in line with what God has said, then we have a problem. And having... Knowledge about Christianity and the Bible is good, but it's not the same thing as possessing that knowledge or even being owned by it. See, our, our heads may be full, but our hearts might be empty, still dead in sin and far from God. So we must repent and live in a way that shows we have been changed by God through the gospel. Not live in a way so that we earn favor with God and then receive the blessing of the gospel, our living flows out of what God has already done. Paul says in Colossians 1.10, he, he actually prays for the believers there and says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God, bearing good fruit. 
and we are walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This word calling has the idea of an invitation to experience uh, a special privilege or responsibility. We receive this invitation. But he also knows there's a redundancy. He says, uses the word called. You've been called. Well, this word means to be uh, to choose someone for receipt of a special benefit or a special experience. So we have been chosen by God, as Paul already talked about in chapter one, right? That's why we need to know the whole context in, of Ephesians. All the way back in chapter one, even in verse 18, he talks about the calling of hope we've been called to. So we've received this choosing from God, and he then gives us the invitation to follow him, and yet he works in our life powerfully so that we can't help but see the glory of God in the face of Christ, and yes, I will follow you, Lord. What's our calling? Well, it's our salvation. It's our union with Christ and one another even. It's the powerful work of God to draw people to saving faith in Christ through his special saving grace. And this call bears the power of the Spirit of God to actually bring about salvation. Paul talks about that in Romans 8. We know verse 28. We love verse 28. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's the word called in there too. But then in verse 30 of Romans 8 it says, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a package deal. God doesn't just call some and then glorify them, but skip the justification part. He doesn't predestine and then justify, but never glorify. It's all a package, all by the amazing work of God, And God does it, not us, because we see in the text here, you have been called. It is a passive word. It means God is doing the work. He is so gracious to do that work too. And God's work through the gospel brings us in a special position. A special position. In fact, if we go back to Ephesians 1, verse 4, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Why? so that we would be holy and blameless before him. God's work of salvation is to make you holy and blameless before him. It's not so that you might be holy and blameless. It is guaranteed. God, what God intends to do, he does. God is sovereign in this salvific call and yet we bear the responsibility to respond in faith. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 12, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. That's what you get. Why wouldn't I want to live for him when he's given that to me? There is a responsibility on our part. There is a responsibility on our part to respond and live in a way that matches this work of God. So then we ask, okay, well then what does it actually look like to live in a way that matches that work of God? And I'm so thankful you asked because Paul answers it here. Verse two, verses two and three actually. 
These are the marks of a worthy walk. You Christ-like character towards one another. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Christ-like characteristics. Adding that to verse 1, we see that our personal holiness affects each other. If we are striving and living in holiness, that rubs off good on each other. If we are walking in sin and rebellion, that rubs off on people too. I find it fascinating that the first thing that the apostle narrows down on here, now moving into what those marks look like, is concerning our relationship with others. Our our conduct towards each other is significant, and it ought to show a peaceful harmony is what he's getting at. It begins with humility. This is the root. It begins with humility. This is that that lowliness, not not self-seeking, not proud, boasting, but a lowliness, thinking rightly and living rightly in a way that considers others better than yourself. Our lives are to be examples of humility, so much so that the scriptures talk about it as if you're clothed with it. We saw that in 1 Peter 5 as well. It's like the clothing you wear. It's with you wherever you go. And in the the Greek world, at the time that Paul was writing, man was the center of one's world. Man was the center of the worldview. And and so humility and lowliness were considered shameful and, and to be disregarded, to be avoided. But you read... The New Testament, and you see for the Christian, God is at the center of our worldview, and therefore humility is desired and essential. Completely countercultural. And, and that hasn't changed. Think about how our culture views humility. They twist it. Humility is painted as, well, just think higher of yourself. Just, just think better of yourself. Believe in yourself. Trust your heart. You just need better self-esteem. And then somehow your life's going to be all that much better. That is absolutely opposite of what God commands through his word. Our world, you should be, no, no, no. We prize humility because our Savior was the perfect model of humility. And so if my God could take on flesh to die for my sins displaying the greatest act of humility, then I should follow said example and consider your well-being over my own. It's not right to say, well, Jesus did it, but I don't have to. We must value real humility. Think higher of others. Think higher of God in his word. Think lower of ourselves. The, The better we grasp our own depravity, the greater we see that God's grace is. Does Eastridge have a mindset and disposition of humility? I mean, we, we might be quick here, to, even with that question, to think of others we know who need humility. But we must start with ourselves. We must ask ourselves, am I combative 
constantly looking to push back or make sure my point is heard and my point triumphs? Or am I putting the lives and well-being of others ahead of my desires? We must think biblically about ourselves. So humility is the root. But then it flows also into gentleness with all humility and gentleness or meekness. This word means it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I'm not overly impressed with myself. I'm sorry, this is what you get. There's a considerateness, a courtesy. You know, someone who is gentle and meek does not have a, a sense of roughness or harshness or rudeness. This person thinks little of any personal merits or rights and rather it seeks the well-being of others by responding appropriately to the situation. You know, I'm, I'm willing to give up my personal rights for others. I'm not a contentious person. This, the gentle person is not constantly complaining or always pointing out other people's issues. We think about this. Our Lord was the perfect example of meekness, of gentleness. In fact, in, in Matthew eleven twenty nine, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. And, and we see his way, he perfectly interacted with others in a way that was best for them. Now, it does not mean, being gentle does not mean you're weak. Meekness is not weakness. We would not call Jesus weak. And if you do, I fear for you the day you stand before him when he comes as judge. It is a right view of ourselves in relation to God and in relation to others, and that right view guides every situation. In fact, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that we all are to possess as a believer. And, and notice, I, I skipped a word here as we went through this. With, he doesn't just say with humility and gentleness. It's with all humility and gentleness, the all goes with both humility and gentleness here, and, and this word has the idea of to the fullest, the greatest amount of it. It's overflowing. Humility and gentleness happens in all situations, at all times. You are never without it. Never without it. And yet we're also, he says, to be patient. With patience, we bear up under provocation, or some translate as long-suffering. It means to endure hardships and then respond correctly in those hardships. To, to not respond in a rough manner, even, and this is the idea of patience, even if there's no immediate change, no immediate result or immediate relief. I mean, we, we live in a time that wants immediate Things immediately. I gotta have it now. Go to Amazon. Boop. It'll be here in two days. Immediate. I got a thought. Boom, I can post it on instant media so everyone can see it and just praise me for my just amazing depth of thinking. Just profound. I'm such an influencer. But the idea of patience, and, and, and this is what we actually experience in life, is Hardships usually take time. 
Our sanctification takes time too. The Lord is patient to work with us. And so as walking patiently means I'm, I'm bearing up under that, even though it's not comfortable, and I'm gonna try to respond rightly even when there's no immediate relief. I'm still gonna do what's right. God is the perfect example of patience, is he not? I mean, think about the Bible, think about the Old Testament story with Israel and how patient God was with Israel. You think of the life of Jesus, how patient he was with the people, especially his his own disciples. You think about our how patient God is with our modern, corrupt Romans 1 world. And yet, God has not consumed it in fire yet. He is so patient. And in fact, his patience is to draw us to repentance. Paul said in, in Ephesians 2, going backwards a little bit there, in verses 11 through 21, that we're one family in Christ. And therefore, we ought to treat each other better as a family being patient with each other. We don't, we don't treat each other's enemies or as if, well, you're part of that lost pagan world. God's family is patient with one another because we love one another. Not only that, but we bear with one another in love. We bear with one another in love. There's a, as he moves into this, bearing with one another in love, he shifts in the grammar. Okay, so humility Gentleness and patience were the manner in which we walk worthy. They're our attitude, our disposition, our demeanor. But the next two aspects, what, the points that he makes, indicate the means in which we walk in a worthy manner, how we're actually to do this. We do it by bearing with one another, enduring, putting up with, tolerating one another. Again, God is the greatest example of this. Just read the word and you find that out. And, and we come to this with a, uh, with a biblical thinking. We remember our own depravity. As we interact with each other, we remember our own sinfulness and where God has saved us from. And so that ought to cause us to give grace to one another, to bear with one another. And, and obviously, there are times we address sin, right? We, we don't just let everything go. Sin is serious. And God will deal with it and we are to address it We are to address faulty thinking, but if we are not dealing with a major doctrinal, life-devastating issue, we remember to bear kindly with our heavenly family. And we do this with what? What does he modify it with? In love. In love. In in concern for the well-being of others. He had said back in Ephesians 3.17 that we are being rooted and grounded in love by Christ. Christ's love propels us to love others. Christ sets the standard and we follow that standard. And by him saying we bear with one another in love, that protects us from just enduring with someone but at the same time having a really hard heart about it and being bitter. Fine, I'll tolerate you but man I can't stand you and while I might disagree doing this in love reminds me that I don't want to tear them down just so I can win the argument and if we're honest it's really difficult and you know where that difficulty is seen most often probably in our own homes as we interact with each other 
but we must keep this in mind. We bear with each other in love. We also are to be eager to maintain, this is verse three, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We are to be eager to maintain this unity, eager. I make every effort to maintain it. I strive with with a sense of urgency that this is important, maintaining the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. It's important. It gets my effort. It gets my attention. To maintain the unity. What is unity? I use that word a lot. You will hear it a lot today. Well, the word unity means a state of oneness or of being in harmony and in accord. A harmony, a oneness. We are eager to maintain that oneness in the church. Now, what does he not say? Look at your Bibles. What's he not say? Eager to maintain the unity. He does not say eager to create the unity. He is not saying we are to create unity, but rather we're to keep it, to not destroy it, because it was already established by the work of God. That's chapters one through three, especially chapter two when you talk about the church and the nature of the church. Unity is ultimately produced by the Holy Spirit as he brings together people in one body, the body of Christ. He does that work. Now, if we're honest, even just his command to maintain it, to keep it, we are great at. We easily, we can so easily drift towards breaking it, often over preference and opinion. I had a professor in seminary who said regarding this section in Ephesians, quote, it takes effort for Christians to work at getting along with one another, end quote. It takes effort just to, for us to work at getting along with each other. Why? Well, you remember the problem I mentioned at the very beginning? We're still sinners, still wrestling and battling with the sins of the flesh, and we bump into each other, and that causes conflict. But we are to give just as much effort in maintaining, keeping this oneness as a church. We are to live with one, or one another in a way that demonstrate the, demonstrates the unity that the gospel brings. We are God, we're just to be pictures of the gospel. This is how God has changed my life. And this, this does take intentional learning more doctrine. I know that sounds crazy. Bear with me. Learning more doctrine and how that doctrine impacts me which hopefully we will do in Sunday school hour. I learn the doctrine and I, then I give attention to how does that change the way I live. We strive to keep, to protect, to preserve the oneness, the unity, the harmony of the church because it belongs to Christ. It's his body We are all united together as if we were ligaments and muscles and joints. Everything needs to work together. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit because the Spirit creates it in the bond of peace. Peace. Peace, harmony between believers. 
Now remember, that's only possible because of the work of Jesus that brings peace. But again, he doesn't say to establish this peace. This peace was already established by Jesus and the peace that Christ created serves to bind us together and our unity with each other that the Holy Spirit creates, it's wrapped with, it's wrapped by peace. It's a harmonious, we're to have a harmonious relationship among each other and it is to be constantly on display. This peace, it's a bond, it's like duct tape. It's like gorilla glue that holds us together. We're the temple of God. We are living stones put together by God and we are set with the mortar of unity and peace. All done by God who is building his great temple. We are charged to keep, to protect, to preserve, to maintain that peaceful harmony. We are charged to do that. So then you ask, okay, well how do I know it's being maintained, like I'm supposed to maintain it. How do I know it's being maintained? Well, it should be visible. It should be visible and evident. It requires us, obviously, being involved in each other's lives, to be fellowshipping, to be practicing the one another's that we find in Scripture. We will, when that is on display, we see a maintaining of that unity. How do we know then when it's not being maintained? How do we actually know that this unity is not maintained? Well, Christ has created peace between us and God, and then from that, each other, as we trust in him. But if we're not living according to that truth, that he created the peace, then we are rebelling against God and therefore there'll be a lack of visible peacefulness, harmony. There will be a lack of those marks of a worthy walk, humility, a lack of gentleness and patience, definitely not bearing with one another in love. You will see constant conflict. If we're being combative, argumentative, always playing the devil's advocate, constantly quarreling, then we are not maintaining the peaceful unity created by God. We are soiling what God has created and this is wrong. It's wrong. So what's our attitude and our demeanor in the church? What are we each known for? Ask, so what, what am I known for here at the church and in my life? Am I known for building up or am I known for quarreling? Am I, am I contributing to the bond of peace or am I fighting against peace in the church? Okay, well, why am I doing that? We can ask ourselves, okay, where do I need to put on these worthy characteristics that he listed here? Where are the gaps in my life? Where is that sin of the flesh still there that I need to mortify and put on these worthy marks? Maybe we need to repent. Maybe you need to repent of that sin of rebellion against the peace God has created. 
and instead pursue living in line with what God has said and done because it's far better and right to do what he has said. So we must live intentionally in a way that shows the peace and unity of the gospel. This is what you and I are called to in Christ. It's what we're commanded to do. So then let's ask the follow-up question. But why? But why? This is verses four through six. Why should we live this way? Why is it important to live with such unity? Let's read these real quick. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to, one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why is it important? Why should we do it? Well, verses four through six are the foundation of our unity. The foundation. Our union as a body is not based on just anything, especially not based on our feelings, because those aren't trustworthy. It's not based on what the world defines should bring us together. It's got a lot of opinions about that. It is based on the truths of what the scriptures teach. That is our foundation these verses tell us what really brings us together. This is what brings us together, verses four through six. Now, you might have heard a little bit of a repetition in these verses. One body, one spirit, one hope. You, you get the point. The word one is used repetitively. And when we study our Bibles, we want to look for repeated words. That's important. Well, that's the emphasis here. This word one, this union, now, we can break this section up into, there's three groupings, and each of these groupings of three are marked by a member of the Trinity. And it is only by the work of the triune God that unity is possible and it is real. Only by his work. Now, the first one, one body. There is one body. There is one church. It's referring to the universal church. All those from Pentecost to the rapture who have repented and trusted in Jesus, they are united together, they are joined together by Christ and in Christ, and then that church is displayed, that union is displayed through the local church. We are a picture to our community of the body of Christ. We're a walking picture. Okay, so then let's ask the question. We're gonna ask this question of all these. How does this impact us? How does this impact us? Well, Christians are united with Christ and we're his body. So our interactions with each other should be peaceful and harmonious as we follow the orders of Christ, our head. And we know, we, we know what it's like when our physical bodies seem to rebel with what we want them to do. When we're sick or things just stop operating the way they should. The back stops working the way it should. Just getting headaches, you can't think. And sometimes it's quite debilitating. In the same way, when the body of Christ fights, it's not doing as the head has ordered it to do. And in such way, we dishonor Christ and we don't live on mission as disciple-making worshipers of Christ because they're so busy fighting with each other. So our 
being one body is part of the foundation of why we live in this way. How there is unity. Why it's important for us to maintain unity because that is the spiritual reality of what God has made. Okay, so he goes on. There's one spirit. He's referring to the Holy Spirit here and that's the primary theme in these three, first three. The Holy Spirit's the one that practically does the uniting. He puts us in the body of Christ and he he brings us the hope that we have in salvation. He, as we learn in Ephesians 1, he seals God's people. He dwells in us. You think about, about the, the wonderful nature of Christmas, even the title Emmanuel, God with us. God dwells with us. Well, Jesus isn't physically here, but he has sent his spirit to dwell within us. So God does dwell with his people. He abides in them. The Holy Spirit, even as an advocate and an interceder for us, he brings us to the Father. It is amazing. That, that, um, I would, if you want a fun study, an amazing, impactful, life-changing study, study what the Spirit does in our lives, what his role is. Okay, so how does this impact us? Let's ask our question. Well, we, we remember that as we live in contact with each other, we have the same spirit dwelling in us as Christians. He's working in my life and he's working in your life. And we should be sensitive to that sanctifying work of him in our lives. And when we're causing divisions or combatively breaking the peace, we are rebelling against the Holy Spirit's unifying work. He is the one that brings us into this state of peace and togetherness. And when we violate that, we grieve him and are being ungodly unless it is doctrine at stake. Most often it's not. But when we walk as those controlled by the Spirit, oh man, the body of Christ flourishes. Okay, so there's one body, one spirit, and he says just as you were called, you were called, you were chosen to be given, what? This one hope that belongs to your call. Your salvation comes with the blessing of a hope, not like the world's hope. This hope belongs to your call, it's produced by your call. The gospel, this this call of the gospel brings unshakable and permanent hope, not just wishful thinking, but this is a confident expectation confident expectation that what God's plan and is and what his word says will happen. Brothers and sisters, we will be with Jesus one day, dwelling where there is no more sin. It's gonna happen. I'd vote for this week, but you know, I'm not in charge, so. Okay, so how does this impact us? Well, we live in harmony and joy and we can be of good cheer and we can remind each other of don't forget that eternal hope in Christ. It hasn't changed. Don't forget it. We remind each other what's to come. We can be an encouragement to each other and help one another look up to remember that hope even in times of trouble. There's one body, one spirit, one hope, And now we get the next grouping of three. One Lord. 
Salvation is by one Lord. It is Jesus. It's in Jesus alone. There is no way to God, no road to God apart from Jesus. There's one master. It is Jesus. Okay, so how does this impact us? Well, we have a Savior and a Lord, and that is Jesus, our great head, our great master. We, we live according to what he commands, especially in our interactions with each other. We must submit to him. And, and when we consider how we deal with each other, we must remember to point each other to Christ. We don't point each other to ourselves. It's point to Christ, look to Christ, submit to Christ. And when we're combative and irritable, we must recognize that we're not living as our Lord commands. We are forsaking the peace that he establishes when there is conflict, sinful conflict. Instead, we had a desire to please our Lord to do what we can to obey him so that his church flourishes. One Lord. There's also one faith. One faith. You must exercise faith in Christ. You must trust in Christ. In order to be part of the church, you have to trust in Jesus. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. It's not faith and works. This is the only way. Faith alone. How does that impact us? Well, we live in a way that shows we've been changed by our faith in Christ. We interact as a church family as those who are each individually trusting Christ and yet corporately trusting in Christ. We walk by faith in Christ, and I want to help you, you want to help me press on in that walk of faith. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One baptism. Admittedly, this is the tricky one in the grouping. There is much ink spilt on what baptism is referring to here. Is it water baptism? Is it spirit baptism? Is it something else? I believe it's probably not referring to water baptism. It doesn't mention the other ordinance that is quite unifying of the, of the Lord's Supper. And it's lumped in with the one Lord in this triplet. So most likely it's referring to our being immersed into Christ, being united to Christ. Our identification is with Jesus in his death, his resurrection in this new life. We, we actually see this usage in 1 Corinthians 10 too when it says that Israel was baptized into Moses. Well, they weren't water baptized by Moses into Moses. They were, the wording, the idea there is that he was their representative head, the leader God had prescribed that they were to follow and they were in a sense united to him. But now we know we have a greater representative head. That is Jesus. He is the head of the church. He is the Lord, the one we trust in. And our union with him makes a union also with each other. Okay, so how does that impact us? Well, we have the assurance that we are secure in Christ. We have assurance. We are secure in Christ. And as we draw closer to Christ, we naturally will draw closer to each other. So we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And then it wraps up one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. He's 
God is over all. He's of all. He is the father of all Christians. He is over all. He is the sovereign God. All authority belongs to him. Authority over believers, authority over the church, authority over the world. Ephesians 1 tells us that he works all things according to the counsel of his will, not our will, his will. And we remember that he is providentially working out what is best both in our lives and in the life of the church. Boy, we need to remember that. In the life of Eastridge, God is sovereignly working out right now what is best for us. Not what we think we want, but what he, the omniscient one, knows is best. He's of all, over all, through all, meaning he's actively involved in our lives for our good and his glory, and he's in all, meaning he dwells with us. This is the nearness of God. Okay, that's great. How does that doctrine impact us? Well, everything we do, we are dependent upon God, and we are to do it for his glory. We can trust that he is working in his church, even in the hard times like we find ourselves, and this ought to bring us comfort. It ought to bring us assurance, and and we trust him through that. He is doing sovereignly what is best, He is with us, with you, every step of the way, every decision we make, every change we take. And yet in all that, we live for his glory in everything. That's our primary aim. And so does that impact me? That means his glory is to be what my focus is on. And I get busy doing the work of the ministry. We get busy doing the work of the ministry because our sovereign God has work for us to do. That was Ephesians 2.10. So, Okay, but why, why? Why should we live this way as Paul exhorts? Why is it important to live with such unity? It is important because the Trinity is at the center of unity. The character of our God and the nature of his work and the gospel impacts everything and we cannot sacrifice any of these fundamentals that we see in verses four through six. If we sacrifice just one of them, we lose everything. Church events do not create unity. God and the gospel creates unity. And we just maintain it and put it on display when we gather together. If we think we are not united, then we must step back and evaluate if we have sacrificed any of these foundational truths. Where did we go wrong? Where do we need to repent? Where am I forgetting this great truth of Scripture and not applying it? Why is this important? Well, our walk with the Lord, our individual walks with the Lord impacts the unity of the body of Christ and we must maintain the unity of the church by intentionally living as people changed by the gospel. Walking as such reflects true Christianity. It reflects our faith. And the spiritual reality that we are united together with a peace that is greater than any worldly attempt to strong arm tolerance. The world's attempt at that is not true peace and unity. Because of what Jesus has done to create one new family, we ought to live in a way that is aligned with what God has already done. 
So as we wrap up our series, we remember the nature of the church. This is God's people. God has done the work to build his church, and he will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail over them. It is only those who repent and trust in Christ that are part of his church. And as we do, God, by his authority, places certain men in leadership who are to meet a certain qualification and are to be given to the task of shepherding God's people with his word. And the congregation has the responsibility to God to follow that shepherding. We are to act in a certain way as a church. Primarily, we worship God, and that is the primary goal above all. We worship our Lord, our, we worship Christ, and yet in the midst of that, God has given us work to do, and that is disciple-making. And as we go about making disciples, as we go about living with each other, we are also called to serve one another because remember, God has given us gifts to build up the body of Christ. And yet within all of that, we are to abide by walking faithfully in unity. That is how we remain the church and not tear each other apart. So as the Apostle Paul pleaded with the Ephesian church, so I plead with you. Please see how amazing the gospel is and please live a life that shows it has changed you. Not because you think it will earn you favor with God, but because God has first shown such great love towards you. Please live together with one another in a way that shows you are different from the fallen world. Live with one another in a way that shows you are in Christ. And finally, love the church as Christ has loved the church and given his life for her. The church does matter to him. So it should to us too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is no doctrine of you from your word that we can exhaust. We thank you that we can be lifelong students, even just considering the doctrine of the church. And yet that is so connected to all the other doctrines. And yet that is not just there for us to fill our heads and then do nothing. Father, our heads and our hearts are to be full and our hands are to be busy serving, working. Father, I pray as we have spent weeks studying the church that our love for the church would grow, our, even our involvement in it would grow, that we would desire to serve because we know it honors you and you've called us to do that. But Father, may we grow as a people who maintain unity well. And in, in a season of change like we're going through and hardship, Father, may we remember you are the sovereign Lord of your church. And we thank you. You are the one that will do what is right and what is best. May we be found faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.